be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who woke up this morning and said, I can't wait to go to church and talk about the end times? Dun, dun, dun. All right, uh, that's what we're here to talk about today is the end times. Um, the last things, the thing uh, theologians call eschatology. Uh, this is probably, I think, my first end times sermon at least at the story, uh, we've never really focused only on what are we waiting for? What are we hoping for? What's supposed to happen? So uh, and in just a minute, we'll, we'll dig into some scriptures from Luke chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 22. If you have your own Bible, then, then you can kind of get ready for that. If you don't and you're kind of new to the faith or maybe you just, you're older to the faith, you just don't have a Bible, that's okay. We make it real easy. Uh, we got it on these study guides right here. I hope these are helpful to you. We've also got it on the screen um, at, when we'll do uh, readings in a minute to make it super easy and accessible. If you don't have a Bible, we've got one we'd love to give you for free with no strings attached at the connection table out in the lobby um, along with a coffee mug if it's your first time here. we just love to gift you with those things. All right, here we go. No more, no more procrastinating. Let's talk about the end times. Y'all ready? The, the reason this is so weird and hard is because Christians have been very weird for a long time when it comes to end times, right? We've all seen the guy standing on street corners, you know, with the signs and the, the bullhorns and sometimes even like pretty scary, hateful messages like, you know, turn or burn, those kinds of things. We've seen the billboards. And I, just this week, I took pictures of a guy. I put it on my Instagram, my, my Facebook, a guy at the corner of Chimney Rock and, and Southwest Freeway with a sign that said the same kind of message. And the stuff is everywhere. And so uh, some of y'all are thinking, man, uh, just when I thought I finally found a church that was normal, now I got to start over again because this is they're about to break out the weird on me here. You know, I knew I should have gone to that Episcopalian church where they don't talk about things like this, <laughs> you know, or the Bible or whatever. You know, I knew... I knew I should have checked out that Catholic church, et cetera. You see what I'm saying? All right. If you are offended by that, just stick around. I'll get around to other groups to offend them later. I'm an equal opportunity offender. But here's the thing. I know how crazy Christians can sound when we talk about the end time stuff. But we can't just skip over this stuff. Can't skip over it. Pretend like it's not there. Jesus was an apocalyptic teacher. He told more stories about the end times than any other topic, than any other topic. And so we got to pay attention. He wanted us to know something about what's coming, or what we have to wait for and to hope for. And so we owe it to ourselves, I think, at a minimum, to understand what Jesus wanted us to know. I'm not asking you today to deal with the book of Revelation and all that craziness. I'm not asking you to even deal with Paul so much as just the teachings of Jesus. What did Jesus believe? About the end times. So today we're wrapping up this series called Jesus Unfiltered. 
We're asking the question, what did Jesus believe about things yet to come? Somehow, even though he talked ad nauseum about the end times, Christians have again and again gotten it completely wrong. Okay? So 47% of Christians in a recent study said that Jesus is either definitely or probably going to return within 40 years. Definitely. That's a strong word. Or probably 47% of us as Christians in America. Another 38% of Christians in America said Jesus is either definitely, there it is again, or probably not going to return within the next 40 years. Only 14% of Christians in America heard this question and went, I don't know. <laughs> Which would have been the most biblical answer that anyone could give. Because if Jesus ever said anything about the end times, again and again and again, he says no one knows the day or the hour that it will happen. No one knows. Only 14% of Americans who are Christians have ever read the New Testament, apparently, because only 14% said, I don't know. The rest of us said, definitely or probably going to happen or not. You know, another way we uh, Christians have gotten this stuff so wrong, and this is even, I think, more embarrassing, is with stuff like the rapture. Now, if you grew up within the Bible Belt, you know exactly what I'm about to talk about. If you grew up outside the Bible Belt, you're going to have no clue what I'm about to talk about. But the rapture was an all-consuming fire of worry and terror for me growing up as a child in the Bible Belt. Every kid that grew up in the Bible Belt pre-cell phone had that experience when you came home to an empty house. <laughs> and nobody left a note. You don't know, they were supposed to be there, but they're not home. And they didn't come home for a long time. And you were only left to assume that the rapture had happened. And you got left behind. You were left out. You didn't make the cut. What am I supposed to do now? I guess I'll eat all the little Debbies and watch all those channels I wasn't supposed to watch. <laughs> Why not? Just enjoy the ride from this point. It was terrifying. Did you know the word rapture never appears in the Bible? The idea of the rapture never, as we understand it anyway, never actually appears in Scripture. No Christians at all believed in rapture until the early 18th century when some Christian preachers proposed, I believe, a misreading, a misinterpretation of Paul's explanation of the great last day, the resurrection of the dead in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I don't have time to get into this now, but if you're curious, come back at 5 o'clock for the Q&A. I am sure we'll have some questions about this topic. But I think it's a gross sort of uh, misreading of uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, and we got this idea of the rapture, and it became like a top five Christian idea, like the rapture is going to come, and all these Christians are going to evacuate the planet immediately and just be gone. And cars are going to start crashing, and there's bumper stickers. If In case of rapture, this car will be unmanned and all this craziness. Like, we said all this stuff. Even though the Bible didn't say it, it didn't stop Christians from making the Left Behind series New York Times bestsellers again and again. Even the sequels, which were even worse than the first one. And none of, none of it stopped Kirk Cameron from making those awful books into awful movies, which to my knowledge did not receive any awards but they did include scenes like the one you're about to watch now. You can thank me later. Check out this scene from Left Behind. 
me? Where are you? Ma'am, is everything okay? It's my husband. He, he's disappeared. You know what? I bet he just slipped off to the restroom while you were asleep. Would you mind checking, please? Okay, sure. Take this. Ma'am? I think he's gone off naked. I'll be right back. Now. I've never been ashamed of Jesus or the gospel, but man, have I been ashamed of Christians sometimes. <laughs> what are we thinking? What are we thinking? And why didn't she go to heaven with her husband? What kind of dirty old lady was she? What did she do? She seems very nice. Anyway, we're not here to talk about what we don't believe, uh, although I could make a whole uh, routine out of that. I, I, uh, we're here to talk about what Jesus believed about last things. And he told these stories, at least uh, five other parables, other than the one that was in the scripture video today from Luke chapter 12. He told that one. He told at least five other distinct parables about what to expect, what's coming um, in the end times or the last days. And so each of those stories has little details that are different. He teaches a little bit of different things here and there, but they all have the same two big themes. The same two big themes uh, in these stories are readiness and responsibility. So readiness is about integrity. Readiness is about character. So when Jesus says be ready, be dressed and ready, it means be a person, a man or a woman or a child of integrity, of character. So it's not just about behaving like a Christian or acting like a Christian at church on Sundays. It's about being a person of faith from the inside out, being who you are. You know, I've, I've seen the, everybody's probably seen the, the kitschy little uh, Christian meme or, or uh, you know, wall poster that says, character is who you are when no one is watching. And there's something true about that, that sometimes we can behave like Christians and pretend like Christians, but when nobody's watching, we're someone else. So readiness means being ready from the inside out. Responsibility means that when you are given the gift of a relationship with God, when, you, when God invites you to know him, and you know him through his word, through creation, you know him through community, that is a great privilege. That is an awesome privilege. And so it comes with some burdens. It comes with a cross to bear. When you come into an awareness of this grace of God, then you are beholden um, to share that grace with others. And so we talk about, uh, Jesus talks about readiness and he talks about responsibility. So according to Jesus, all believers should be ready for God to show up at any moment and they should be proud of, or we should be proud of who we are in that moment before God and we should be willing to bear the burden of our faith. Now this story from Luke 12 that I read on the video, uh, scripture video today, actually continues. And it continues when Peter asks Jesus whether he's teaching just for believers or whether he's teaching for all people. And Jesus basically responds saying, no, I'm calling you out as believers to lead others as well, to steward, to be stewards, and to be responsible for this power that you've been given in the gospel. So Peter asked, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? And Jesus answered, 
Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? So just to catch you up here, what Jesus is saying, he's telling another parable that there is a, man, that there is a, a landowner who, when he's going away, puts one person in charge of all the servants and all the other affairs of the house. So this person has acted trustworthy. This person has earned the trust of the landowner. But the moment the landowner leaves, look at what happens. The, then he begins to beat the other servants. He's been entrusted with his stewardship. But he begins to wield it over the men and women heavy-handedly. He eats and drinks and gets drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. There is a higher level of accountability for those of us who have come into an awareness and a knowledge of God. This servant in the story is neither ready nor is he responsible. He has not been a man of character. He has not been a, a good steward of the master's house. So the master left him in charge and he took advantage. He's a hypocrite. You know anyone like this who is one way outwardly, but they're another way inwardly? They act one way when everybody's watching. They act another way when no one is watching. Uh, that's, that's a lack of character. And at the end of this teaching, Jesus gets to the point. He says uh, a line that I think the writers of the Spider-Man uh, comics ended up stealing from Jesus without ever citing him, right? They didn't follow the MLA rules or anything like that. Jesus says, everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded. From the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. What did Peter Parker's uncle tell him when he was dying? Thank you. Whoever said that, I want to hang out with you because you're the cool guy in the room. With great power comes great responsibility. With great power comes great responsibility. This is a very common theme in Jesus' parables about the end times. If you've been given the power of a relationship with God, then you have responsibility to not just sit on that, not be complacent. There's no such thing as a private Christian or a secret believer. So Jesus tells other parables, too, that tell the same kind of themes, right? So in Matthew 22, if you want to turn with me or, or in your, in your um, study guides, Matthew 22, he tells a story about a king. This king throws a party, a wedding party, because his son is getting married. In Matthew 22, the king's son is getting married, and this is what has happened. The king, months ago, sent out the save the dates. Y'all know what the save the dates are? Anybody ever plan a wedding? So the king sends out the save the dates and tells everybody to reserve this date on the calendar. They are invited to a party, and they're not going to want to miss it. And so he sends out the save the dates. Everybody RSVPs. Everything's good to go. The day arrives. So the king sends out the servants into the city to remind those who've been invited and tell them, you know, where to park and where to set their gifts when they get there and where the reception is and all this craziness. And I like weddings are crazy, right? I, I'm, it's part of my life now. So the, 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 the servants come back and they say, nobody's coming. None of the invited guests are coming. They're all busy. They've got errands to run. They've got work to do. And so the king, in response, sends the servants back out into the city. And he says, forget about those people that we invited and they rejected us. Go and invite anyone and everyone. Jesus says, the king sent the servants out to invite the good along with the bad. Think about that. Invite the good along with the bad to my party. Everybody shows up and they have a party and it's this glorious event. But as Jesus is prone to do, he does not leave it there. He doesn't just let us have this, you know, happy resolution with a bow on the end of the story and aww. He throws a twist in at the end that will rock you. He says this at the end of the story, Matthew 22, verses 11 through 13. 
But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are invited and few are chosen. Man, Jesus can be such a downer sometimes. <laughs> Is it me or did a guy just get thrown into hell for having the wrong outfit on? Y'all see that? What could he possibly have been wearing <laughs> to deserve eternal damnation? White socks with dress shoes or something? <laughs> or a tuxedo t-shirt, maybe? Maybe he had on one of those rompims, one of those one-piece jumpsuits. You know what I'm saying? In which case, I would say he totally deserved it. Anybody here ever worn one of those things? Okay, good. Y'all can stay. All right, good. What? Somebody has. I heard it. What is going on in this story? I don't, obviously, I don't really think the clothes are the point. He's telling us something else. What, what you have to understand is that the clothes, throughout the New Testament, clothing represented preparedness. How you're dressed represented readiness. So what's happening in the story is that the first group of invited guests represented the religious establishment or the religious elites of Jesus' time. Those were the Jewish people who were chosen by God. They had always known of God. They had always known they were invited by God. But that lifetime of feeling invited and welcome and special in God's eyes left them entitled. And many of them were not responding to God's invitation because they were entitled to it, they thought. And so they were too busy, too distracted. They had stuff to do. And so the second round of invitations, when God sent, or the king, who's God in the story, sends the servants out to invite the second batch of guests, those are the rejects. Those are the nobodies. Those are the ones no one wants. Those are the Gentiles. That's us, the unbelievers, the heathens. So he invites the heathens in, and everybody has a, a party. And it's a great party until this guy doesn't have the right clothes on. But what, what's happening here is that even though he knew God's invitation now, even though he knew he was being invited to a wedding, a party at someone else's expense, he was being invited into this family occasion, which was this free gift, this amazing invitation had come his way. He did not prepare himself. He didn't take it seriously enough to honor the invitation and to show up ready. So he was nonchalant about it. He was passe about it. He was whatever. And that is disrespectful. Now, it's one thing. We've all shown up to stuff dressed improperly, right? We've all shown up underdressed or overdressed. And it's one thing to do that if you, if you, knew, if you, if you didn't know like, what you were getting into, right? Or, or if somebody told you it was a costume party and it really wasn't. Like that kind of thing. That's one thing. If you know where you're showing up to, you know where you're going, and you show up um, dressed improperly, it can be a sign of disrespect. Like you don't care enough. You're not responsive enough or in honoring that invitation. It can be an insult to the one who invited you. So in this story, Jesus kind of sums up what we believe as Christians. We don't believe that Jesus is coming back to play gotcha. We don't believe that Jesus is coming back and you should be afraid, like, of doing the wrong thing when he shows up. Like, uh, the, the meme that says Jesus 
is coming. Look busy. Like that kind of thing. Like that's not what it is. But we do believe he is coming back. We believe he's coming back because he hasn't finished what he started. He's coming back to complete what he began in you and me and in creation. He's coming back to finish the reclamation project that he began on the cross. He's coming back to finish the redemption process that he began in the empty tomb. He's coming back to restore us to the perfect image of his love. And with these parables, Jesus is calling on Christians to just be dressed and ready. To be authentically men and women of God. To, to have some integrity about how we're living. And not just to be outward Christians, but to be changed from within. Transformed from within. And here's the thing we need to know about this readiness and responsibility to which we're called. It's not about your behavior. Behaving like a Christian is nice, but it's not really about how you act. It's about your character. It's about who you are. Dressing for this occasion is about being transformed from within. Who you are is what matters. And your behavior will flow from there. Five years ago this month, I became a Christian. It's kind of a special month for me right now. And if you know anything about my story, it can be a little confusing. People put the timeline together and they're like, wait, you were a pastor for a long time before that. <laughs> How is that possible? I don't want you to be unaware. It is quite possible to be a pastor without being a Christian. It happens all the time. <laughs> Believe me. Get to know enough pastors and you'll see what I'm talking about. Okay? It happens all the time. I was one of those. Okay? I was raised around church. I was kind of like that first group of, 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 of invited people, right? I was raised around the church. I always knew what it meant to become a Christian. I went to church. I even led the church. I even preached some really awful sermons that nobody really came to hear. Truly, we had church, you know, small churches that we led, but no one came to hear because I wasn't really preaching truth. I was preaching me. Because I wanted people to see what a good person I am, what a good leader I am, and, and how much I'm willing to give for the stuff that, that God cares about, right? So those Christians, I would say, those Christians aren't doing it right. I would criticize Christians more than anyone else. I hated Christians. I hated Christians, and I couldn't stand the God that they believed in. I didn't think they had it right. I thought they were just, you know, backward and hateful. And so I, I just tried to do it differently. I judged other people while doing the stuff that I thought. So I would do things. I, I arranged, like, uh, you know, jobs for immigrants. I arranged homes for refugees. I started, you know, homeless initiatives to help homeless people. I started urban youth initiatives to help urban youth go to college. And it's not like I wasn't doing good stuff, but y'all, on the inside, it was a dark place in here. And most of the time, I was about a hair from burning out because there was no substance to me at all. It was all about the show. It was all about the pat on the back. It was all about being the savior. And, and so, um, you know, whenever stuff would go wrong, whenever stuff like what happened this week, in Florida, which I'm not going to go into specifics because our children are here today instead of at Children's Church. <laughs> Whenever something so horrific happened back then, I was just full of rage, full of anger, bitterness, darkness. And I knew who I wanted to blame. 
I wrapped together all these different groups of people, and I blamed the Christians and the God they represent. I blamed America and Americans. I blamed, you know, conservatives. I blamed gun owners. I blamed whoever wasn't me. And in my mind, that was all wrapped up together. I even organized these sort of bitter marches to protest, you know, things, causes in gun ownership and stuff like that, and to shame people, mostly American Christians, who seem to love their guns and stuff like that. I guess it was well-intentioned, but, but inside I was just filled with darkness and rage. It's who I was. And I was so stubborn about it because I'm a man from German roots. We don't change our minds about things. So hard-headed. And all along, Giovanna's just there praying for me and, and begging me to just, you know, stop preaching lies. And she just begged me to, like, go to law school and stop telling lies. And, and, and I did, but then I just burned out of that, too, because I was just angry on the inside. And then I found Jesus five years ago in the Holy Land of all places. Who knew? That Jesus would be hiding out in Nazareth. <laughs> but this was at the tail end of my trip to the Holy Land, my first trip. And, and by that time in the trip, the evidence was stacked against me. And I was convicted by the evidence. The truth of the matter is that Jesus did in fact exist. A man actually existed named Jesus in that land at that time, at that place. And he actually did start a movement, and he actually did call himself God. And those who were closest to him actually believed it, that he was God, and they called him God too. And this man actually began a movement, and then he ended up on a cross. He actually died on a Roman cross. This is historical, factual, evidence-based stuff here. He actually died on the cross. And then after that, something inexplicable, something crazy happened, something so crazy that all of his followers were sent into an absolute frenzy. A frenzy of activity occurred immediately after that. So that 11 guys who called him God were willing to die on crosses too or would get their heads cut off for the sake of this claim that he was God. And that those uh, actually, 10 of them died. John somehow survived, but none of them were really effective. Even John was in, was in exile, and so you would think that the movement would be done. Their leader was dead on a cross. The 10 or 11 other guys were also dead or exiled. Like, there's nothing left. But somehow, within just two generations of time, 11 guys became over a million people claiming that this man was God. This dead guy was God. This guy that I thought was a really good teacher, but not the myth his followers made him out to be after his death. I just couldn't reconcile. I, I just, I couldn't make that case anymore. That doesn't happen for a myth. A million people without the advantage of the internet or social media to spread the word and with all of these leaders either crucified or with their heads cut off, the movement just exploded, and the only logical explanation I could muster in that moment was that the tomb of Jesus was actually empty. And I finally surrendered. And I don't cry much. Y'all are laughing because I cry now. I didn't cry. <laughs> I promise I didn't cry then, especially in front of people. There were people all around me, and I started crying. 
Finally, I just, I couldn't run anymore. And I had been wrong for so long and so bitter and so just enraged. Finally, I just surrendered and I went to my knees. I put my hands in the water of the Sea of Galilee and immediately began to feel like a new man. I texted Giovanna, oh my God, it's all real. I can't believe it's all real, baby. And she's getting these cryptic texts from her husband across the world. She's back in Kansas City. It's all real, baby. What, what is he talking about? <laughs> she did not know until I got home. And she said on the way home from the airport, you are a new man. And I was. And I am. Now whenever things like what happened in Florida happen now, it still affects me. I'm as heartbroken as ever. I'm, I'm devastated as ever. But I just don't have the hate in me anymore. I don't have the capacity in me to look at a person or a group of people and say, you guys are to blame. You don't vote the right way. You don't think the right way. You're not like me. Now, do I still think that, like, mental illness is a huge problem in America? Of course. Do I still think that, like, the way we have access to semi-automatic weapons and stuff like that is a problem in America? Of course it is. But when Jesus takes over your heart, you interpret these things differently. When Jesus takes over your heart, you don't need to make a point anymore. When Jesus takes over your heart, you see that no one ever changed anyone's minds with a Facebook post. That no one's mind was ever changed. No one's vote was ever changed with an argument by publicly shaming them. When Jesus takes you over, things just get different because you realize Jesus never waited for any secular government to change the world. You know what Jesus did? Every room he walked into, he found the loneliest most rejected person he could find. And he became that person's friend. Everybody wants to make a point. Nobody wants to be the weird guy's friend. You want to change the world? You want to prevent future shootings in the near future? Be the weird guy's friend. Be Jesus. Jesus built his movement with weird guys. All those guys have followed him around with the rejects. That's why we're here. We're the rejects too. We're the losers. We're the outcasts. And he became our friend. And he called us home. He changed us from the inside out. If you want to change the world, that's where it starts. Voting is important. Advocating for causes is important, I guess. What's really important is searching your heart searching down, hunting down all the darkness and sin that still exists in there and asking God to deal with it and surrendering to whatever God wants to do with you. That's how change happens. Anger and hate never change the world, but loving the lost and lonely always does. So we talk about being dressed and ready, y'all. It's not about your behavior. It's not about where you spend your Sunday mornings. It's not about how much of the Bible that you know and stuff like that. We talk about being dressed and ready. It means changing fundamentally who you are from the inside out. Paul picks up this theme in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, this theme of being dressed and ready. He says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. To clothe yourself with Christ is to be ready for his return at any moment. Not because he's playing gotcha, because he came to complete what he began in us and through us. That's what baptism's for. Now, 
Today, uh, we've already had uh, probably 10 or 11 baptisms and people committing their lives to Jesus in our three services so far. Uh, we have one more person who's going to recommit her life to Jesus today um, in just a moment. And then after that, we're going to have communion. During communion, everyone, look, everyone is invited to search your heart and see what God's doing. And if you feel compelled, if you've never been baptized and you feel compelled to make today the day, come and talk to me. I'll be standing right here as everybody else is doing communion. Nobody even noticed. Just come talk to me and let's talk about what God's doing with your heart. If you've already been baptized, we don't rebaptize you, but I'll put some water on your head and I'll, I'll say, remember your baptism. And the water on your head will remind you that God claimed you long ago at your baptism. And he still calls you son or daughter. He still calls you to live with purpose, to put on the clothes of Christ and be ready for his return when he comes to finish what he began. Let's pray together. Lord, you're good. You are good and we see your goodness. We feel you moving in us and around us today. I pray that you break down the walls of pride, bitterness and rage, brokenheartedness, that you lead us to the waters of surrender where everything is made clear. The truth breaks through. We see at last that we are yours and we always have been. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.